Hello again. Welcome back to Luxi, a podcast to reignite your wonder by exploring the science behind luxury items. It's been a little bit, so I thought we should reintroduce ourselves. I'm Dr. Lex. I have a PhD in microbiology and immunology and a master's in public health microbiology. I've worked at the NIH and the CDC, and I'm currently in the clinical trial world. As as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Demos. Dr. Demos is an electrical engineer and also a material scientist. I am also a rocket scientist by day. Dr. Demos also apparently likes to refer to himself in the third person. He won't tell you is that he has a PhD in electrical engineering, has worked on drives for hybrid vehicles, invented his own solar power inverter, and currently works in rockets. Yes. Collectively, we bring a few decades of experience in scientific research. We are also both incredibly curious people and often wonder about the things around us and find ourselves online looking up one thing or another periodically throughout the day. So this episode, we're exploring the epitome of green gemstones, the emerald. Now, I personally wondered how emeralds are different from other stones like a sapphire. Demos, is there something you wondered about before you started your research? I always wondered what can you do with emerald besides look at it and be amazed (laughs) by its beautiful color and clarity. So we'll try to answer both of those questions. Um, Originally, I had thought we were doing sapphires for this episode, and I even posted on our social media about it and started my notes. And then Demos reminded me that per our schedule, we're doing emeralds, which makes sense because emeralds are the birthstones for May. Those lucky maybes. I don't have any personal anecdotes or experience with emeralds, but they are beautiful. So here's what two non-geologist PhDs found out about emeralds. All right. Emerald's lush green, soothing color, is something that has been around for a very long time. The ancient Greeks called it smaraklos, which is another word for essentially describing the color of emeralds. I thought green was uh, prosin, though. Prosin, yeah, but we're talking about ancient Greek now. Rome's Pliny the Elder described the emerald in natural history in the first century AD, calling it the nothing greens greener as his verdict. (laughs) Described the use of emerald in early lapidaries who have No better method of restoring their eyes than looking at an emerald. Mm. It's soft green colored, comforting and removing weariness and lassitude. I'd love to get rid of some lassitude. Even today, the color green is known to relieve stress and eye strain. So instead of all those blue light glasses, we should just get emerald emerald colored glasses instead of rose colored glasses. If we could look through emeralds all day, it could be very helpful. (laughs) There are other green gems, uh, tourmaline, peridot, but emerald is the one which is always associated with the luscious landscapes and the richest greens. Ireland is Emerald Isle. Seattle in the U.S. state of Washington is the Emerald City. Thailand's religious icon is called the Emerald Buddha, even though it's carved from green jadeite. The first known emerald mines were in Egypt, dating from at least 330 BC into the 1700s. Cleopatra was known to have a passion for emerald and used it in her royal adornments. Emeralds from what is now Colombia were part of the plunder when 16th century Spanish explorers invaded the New World. The Incas had already been using emeralds in their jewelry and religious ceremonies for 500 years. And the Spanish, who loved gold and silver far more than gems, traded emeralds for precious metals. Yeah, I was just going to say, isn't that the irony? Like they came here looking for gold and didn't find gold mines and then just ignored all the 
gemstones that are in you know Brazil and Colombia. Yeah, all the truly priceless stuff. So what is what is emerald? Well, it's a uh, member of the beryl family. Mm -hmm. Legends endowed the wearer with the ability to foresee the future when emerald was placed under the tongue, as well as to reveal truth and be protected against all evil spells. Emerald was once also believed to cure diseases like cholera and malaria. Yeah, well, that's certainly not true. What do they do? Would they like crush it up and try to drink it? Uh, In fact, yes, that is one option. That seems like a bad idea. But, um, you know, let's get back to that because you can also crush emerald, put it in water, and under pressure, make new emeralds. Interesting. All right, Mm -hmm. so what else um, about emeralds formation? So there's some facts, first of all. Mm -hmm. Beryl alumina silicon oxide. Okay. What makes it green? So what makes it green is how it refracts and collects light. So light, white light enters the emerald, mm-hmm. but the resonance of the emerald crystal structure reflects back only green and does so so efficiently that um, all the other colors are essentially absorbed except for that one. So it's not a particular... Like, it's not the aluminum in the barrel that makes it green. You know, like, diamonds are different colors based on different impurities. In this case, we're dealing with a pretty solid lattice, which is uh, well-defined. So it's not like a dopant. Mm-hmm. It's it's truly uh, this barrel or beryllium is another way that we see barrel in, mm-hmm. in like, metal. When it's in metal, we call it beryllium. Mm-hmm. Uh, on its own, barrel is actually quite toxic. But in its uh, crystal form is definitely not toxic. But please still don't go around licking people's emeralds. No, no. But you you definitely won't have any problems if you do. Um, In 1960s, a method called hydrothermal flux synthesis, which is a great name for anything, Mm -hmm. was applied to emerald creation. Right now, it's the way that synthetic emeralds are created. The uh, technique involves dissolving crystal nutrients Mm-hmm. Um, and essentially shaved emerald in an acidic solution of water and um, high temperature and pressure along with the other elements of emerald like alumina and silicon. And water is brought up to an amazingly high temperature and pressure. One of the things that you might know is that if you pressurize water, you can raise the boiling point. In fact, uh, nuclear reactors, for example, have liquid water, even though the water is at 900 degrees Fahrenheit. It's also why you can steam clean things in autoclaves at much higher temperatures. Exactly. Imagine taking that pressure up a few more notches beyond what you, even a nuclear power plant would do. And that's where what it takes to make emerald. So imagine water being liquid at 1800 degrees Fahrenheit. Is this used to make other synthetic gemstones or is it just for the emerald? I believe it's used for other synthetic gemstones. The technology for that is something I did not research for this podcast. Just curious. So the situation of the water is around 800 PSI, Mm -hmm. so pounds per square inch, and 1800 degrees Fahrenheit. Mm -hmm. Sorry, we're not in SI units now, but it's about the same in, in Celsius. I think that most people listening would probably be more it would be more relevant to them in Fahrenheit this is not that far from glass making that makes sense if you think about it but imagine now water as your main solvent (laughs) for glass making it kind of 
re helps you reimagine how crazy water is as as a molecule. Um, so anyway, the molecules, the environment reaches an equilibrium, and mm-hmm. the molecular destasis process mm-hmm. begins. And I guess destasis means un- instability. Mm-hmm. Molecules of the nutrient are stripped away and attracted to and reform on the larger more solid emerald seed. A lot of a lot of things are grown using seeds. You can take silicon, for example, and grow silicon transistors right. and the computer chips off of a single silicon seed. I think what is interesting about that is that many people opt for synthetic gemstones as a more ethical choice for purchasing fine jewelry since the provenance of gemstones is still something that's very controversial, mm-hmm. as is... Uh, much of the mining practices that yield those gemstones. But if you're starting with an emerald anyway, then how ethical are these synthetic ones? Well, you could say this. It is possible to mine anything, both in a sustainable manner and in an unsustainable manner. So if you can trace how the mining has occurred and how well and where it came from, you can then capture quality material in a good way Hmm. from the earth and from that use tiny bits and pieces of that material for example leftovers from the grinding process and then put it into this this method this hydrothermal environment and create new emeralds so does the starting material have to be high quality to get a high quality emerald out of it actually it i don't believe it would and here's why at this high temperature the emerald's crystal structure is going to essentially form on its own if you have the proper quantities of the chemicals in place. So essentially, if there's even a tiny amount of the proper crystal structure available in this hydrothermal environment, you're going to form around that. Mm. And everything else will essentially kind of form something that's a lot more unstable um, mechanically, materially unstable. You'll essentially create one emerald piece and then a lot of offshoots that might be a little bit off. Is there a way to control sort of the size and the shape of the emerald that you make, or is it just up to the system? So what will happen is, is the emerald will grow in bulk at its own, and then from there it can be cleaved mm. and, and then shaped into, let's say, a jewelry type mm-hmm. of emerald or shaped into another type that might be useful for a different application the crystals themselves grow very slowly and so it does take a very long time 0.15 millimeters a day there you go there's some si units Mm -hmm. so a large crystal can take a long time to form you know a lot of crystals are 9 10 millimeters for uh for standard jewelry Mm -hmm. so you can imagine um you would need 10 days to get uh, roughly, I say seven or eight days to get a millimeter. So you would need 10 times that. So you'd need a couple of months just to get one single crystal and maintain that heat and that pressure. So it's a lot. It's a lot going on there. Yeah, it sounds like it. So in any case, uh, in 2000, by the year 2000, synthetic emerald was up to uh, 600,000 carats a year it's a lot of emerald so a lot of emerald a lot of a lot of interest in it mm-hmm. and there are quite a few companies now that make it one company that's well known um, is uh, Kyocera that does a lot of a lot of glass and a lot of other technical silicon oxide and other materials mm-hmm. for the semiconductor industry Lind is another one and they're a European company it's also known for um, glassware and, and scientific glassware 
It makes sense. They have all the same equipment, right? Yeah, yeah. So um, some fascinating companies that are involved in that. And that's, that's my... But again, to tell you the truth, not really a lot on the industrial use of emerald. It is an extremely hard material. Diamond, it's on the lines of diamond. I could see maybe some future uses where you could, for example, help to strengthen ceramics hmm. by doping them with emerald, the way we zirconia dope uh, standard alumina ceramics for, for improved strength. Right. I mean, it's interesting. I found something similar when I looked. There wasn't a lot of biomedical use for emerald, and I didn't see anything that really explained why that was the case. You know, it's a different type of mineral mm-hmm. than a diamond or a sapphire, which we'll talk about next time. But I didn't see a, a, like a big glaring, don't use emerald because of this thing. <laughs> so I have a, something a little bit different for my part of the episode. Usually I go to PubMed, which is the National uh, Library of Medical Science from the NIH. It's their website that is a catalog of all of the medical publications um, ever, probably. They're pretty extensive. And I go there and look at our luxury item of choice and how it's used in biomedical research, and because that's where I feel the most comfortable scientifically, trying to explain things. And as I mentioned, it didn't really work this time. Uh, there aren't a lot of biomedical applications for emeralds. I found a lot about uh, a species of bug, and there's an emerald moth, and there's been clinical trials that used emerald as an acronym for things. And like I said, it would be interesting to delve into why that is, but I think for the sake of the podcast and <laughs> its length, we won't. What I did find is from the Gemological Institute of America. According to their website, the GIA was established in 1931 to provide knowledge, standards, and education in gem and jewelry. They work with diamonds, colored stones, and pearls, and also do research. I follow them on Instagram. Highly recommend. They are a perfect combo of pretty shiny things and science. And they recently posted about some fossilized shells that they received for analysis. So their Hong Kong lab received 11 fossilized shells that were encased in, guess what? Emerald. Yes. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Well, that's what it looked like at first. So they put the fossils under a microscope and saw numerous small light green to green anhedral emerald crystals containing very fine fluid inclusions associated with well-formed brassy pyrite grains. And and as a reminder, inclusions are... Defects in a crystal or in a lattice. Yeah, essentially, they're any material that is trapped in the mineral during formation. And these inclusions are indicative of Colombian emeralds. Colombia is a very big uh, emerald exporter. So they performed x-ray radiography... And essentially, that's just an x-ray like you get at the doctor's office. But interestingly, the x-ray it's, is the, the radiation that's kind of beamed into you. The radiography is actually the picture that's produced from it. So we all say we're getting an x-ray, but really you're getting a radiogram. So Like a telegram. Yeah, x-ray beam, beam is passed through a specimen. The x-rays are absorbed or scattered by the internal structure of the specimen, in, guess, in this case the fossil, and then the remaining x-rays are transmitted to the detector, which makes a pattern that can be visualized. And what they found is that they could see the spiral pattern of the shell with the emerald crystals evenly distributed, which indicated that the mineral had completely replaced the shell material. There's no shell left. It's basically just... It's the coolest thing I've ever heard. Yeah. A shell converted into emerald. Apparently this happens um, with garnet, which we've covered before, Mm. as well. And so to look into this further, they sent 
the specimens to the Laboratoire Francaise de Gemologie in Paris to submit um, to do x-ray tomography, which is a little bit different. It's essentially a CT scan of the shells, which will produce cross-sectional images. Origin of the word tomography is Greek. Do you know? Yes. Uh, tomos is body. Slice. Or slice. Oh, slice like feta. Yes, like feta. But it's not, it's kind of hard to say photography. Photography. <laughs> so Tomography. Tomos is slice. In a feta was taken. Graphy as drawing. So mm. slice drawing. They found no remains of the original shell, indications that the crystals had grown from the solid parts of the animal out to the shell and then inside to the hollow parts of the animal. And the scientists hypothesized that the shell was replaced gradually by many small crystals that later coalesced into a single crystal by a process known as Oswald ripening. And that's the dissolution of small crystals and the redeposition of the crystal species on the surfaces of larger crystals, which might be what's happening when they're doing the synthetic emerald in the labs. This reminds me a lot of the uh, basis for the, the series, The Expanse, because there's that woman who converts, turns into a crystal, and she grows into, like, her body converts into a crystal form. Maybe. So she was, she was having Oswald ripening. Right. Well, you know what else has Oswald ripening? Ice cream. Oh, my goodness. When you leave ice cream in the fridge too long and it gets kind of, like, crystalline and chunky, mm-hmm. that's Oswald ripening. Crystalline and chunky. <laughs> this is a thermodynamically driven spontaneous process that occurs because larger particles are more energetically favored than smaller particles. So in ice cream, you get larger ice crystals grow at the expense of smaller ones, giving that coarser texture. And another gastronomical example is the ouzo effect. Mm. Where the drop, so you know what happens when you put an ice cube in ouzo? Turns white. Yes. And the droplets in the cloudy microemulsion grow by Oswald ripening. And this only happens with anise-flavored alcohols. Mm. And, it's because, and it's an interesting emulsion that forms and is highly stable. You can drink a whole glass of ouzo and it won't separate the emulsion. Because it is an emulsion. Yeah. Usually an emulsion you think salad dressing, right? Yeah. And you can shake it, shake it, shake it. And then, you know, 30 seconds later it's yeah. apart again. Unless you add mustard. Right. Unless you add a surfactant. Mm-hmm. But you don't use surfactant in this case. You don't. Let me get some ouzo right now. After the podcast. Okay. So this happens when a highly hydrophobic or afraid of water oil, oil, such as anethole, which is the flavoring, I think, that you get in any, in the anise, is dissolved in a water miscible solvent like ethanol. And that is a a solvent that can fully mix with water. So if Mm. you put water in your alcohol you don't see any sort of emulsions or anything like yeah, that yeah like water and whiskey yeah and normally this isn't stable like in salad dressing because the oil droplets coalesce back together because they're hydrophobic so they all want to be together in ouzo the droplet coalescence is slowed and some scientists use microscopy to show that the droplets actually go grow by oswalt ripening and not by coalescence wow. and it's a very subtle physics difference but apparently accounts for the reason why you get that really cool effect when you drop an ice cube in a glass of ouzo mm. and why it stays that way while you drink the whole glass. So cool. Yeah, I'll leave it there in case you want to do an episode on the science of ouzo later in the podcast series. Thank you. I stole all my thunder. Why? You had that? Oh, you had the asphalt ripening as well? No, I did not. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Do you remember what x-ray tomography is? Yes, thanks to your uh, adept explanation, it's slice drawing. 
or a CT scan, yes, cross-sectional yes. imaging, cross-sectional imaging using X-rays, X-rays, right? So it's the same concept where the X-rays interact with, you know, molecules in the specimen, and they either get absorbed or scattered in different patterns, and then that's projected onto the mm-hmm. detec- detector for imaging. And then we just did this Oswalt ripening. What's that? Oswalt ripening is the growth of larger energetic crystals inside of a medium. Um, because the larger crystals are more preferred in nature. Close. Dissolution of small crystals and the redeposition on surfaces of larger crystals. That sounds better. No, well, I mean, you know, scientific definition and all. Mm-hmm. All right. And what is Oswald ripening responsible for that you like to drink? Uzo makes Uzo white. Well, when you add the water, right? And ice cream makes it chunky and not so pleasant. Right. Another reason not to leave it well. Ice cream never lasts too long in our freezer. Mm. Well, I've got some I need to eat tonight. Oh, okay. Yeah, you have some. <laughs> uh, I don't think I like that flavor. Okay. Anyway, thank you again for listening to this episode of Lux Sai. Please follow us on all of our social media, especially this week. We're going to um, add some pictures of emeralds and maybe the fossilized shells again. And maybe Seattle, the Emerald City. Maybe Seattle, the Emerald City, yeah. <laughs> you can find us on social media at LuxiPod. Please like and review wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Big thank you to my co-host and audio engineer, Demos. You're Our welcome. theme music is Harlequin Mood by Birdie. And as always, if you like us, please tell one other person you think you would who would enjoy this podcast. Thanks, everyone. Bye.